We have two scripture lessons this morning. The first comes from Matthew, the 10th or 9th chapter, verses 10 through 13. As Jesus sat down to eat in Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners joined Jesus and his disciples at the table. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said, Healthy people don't need a doctor, but sick people do. Go and learn what this means. I want mercy and not sacrifice. I didn't come to call righteous people, but sinners. And the second text comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. And Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he returned to the temple. All the people gathered around him. And he sat down and taught them. The legal experts and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. Placing her in the center of the group, they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law of Moses, he commanded us to stone women like this. What do you say? They said this to test him, because they wanted a reason to bring an accusation against him. Jesus bent down and wrote on the ground with his finger. They continued to question him, so he stood up and replied, Whoever hasn't sinned should throw the first stone. Bending down again, he wrote on the ground. Those who heard him went away, one by one, beginning with the elders. Finally, only Jesus stood there with the woman left in the middle of the crowd. Jesus stood up to her and said, Woman, where are they? Is there no one to condemn you? She said, No one, sir. Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, don't sin anymore. We are thankful for the gift of scripture. Well, as I shared with you all before, I was part of the Jewish faith before becoming a Christian during my college years. It was a time of challenge and discernment. I asked a lot of questions, and I wrestled with things like the Trinity, which we wrestle with our entire lives, let's be honest, right? The cross and the resurrection, and who in the world this Jesus person really is. I attended church. I talked with a lot of people. Unfortunately, one of the congregations I attended made me feel ashamed for who I was just being who I was. Being female was an automatic strike against me. Being young was an automatic strike against me. I was shamed as a high schooler for my opinions on hot button topics. I felt shamed for some of the things I had done in the past. I asked myself, in order to be a Christian, do I need to be perfect? Do I need to make sure that all of my flaws and my mistakes are corrected before I walk this path? Do I need to change who I am in order to follow Christ? I wondered, but then I learned about grace. Famous author and theologian C.S. Lewis once was asked, is there one belief unique to Christianity? His response was, oh, that's easy, it's grace. Grace is the unconditional love and acceptance of us just as we are. 
And that grace, more than anything else, is what draws people and us to Christianity. As we continue this journey of answering the question, what's the least I can believe and still be a Christian? I would say that grace tops the list. Grace is one of those core beliefs that matter most. Last week, Pastor Jerry talked about the essential faith and practice of loving God and loving one another. So today, let's take a moment to bask in this wonderful thing called grace and the role that Jesus plays within it. At his core, Jesus was and is a person of mercy and grace. When reading the stories found in the Gospels, we constantly see him warmly welcoming, healing, eating with, and befriending those who are considered sinners. He not only welcomed them, but offered them forgiveness, love, and acceptance. He offered grace, and he does just the same for you and me. Brendan Manning, in his popular book years ago called The Ragamuffin Gospel, I love that, The Ragamuffin Gospel, reflects on the fact that Jesus spent most of his ministry with people described in the Gospels as the poor, the blind, the lame, the lepers, the hungry, the sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors, the persecuted, the downtrodden, the captives, those possessed by unclean spirits, all who labor and are heavy burdened, the rabble who know nothing of the law, the crowds, the little ones, the least, the last, and the lost sheep of the house of Israel. What a list. In short, Jesus hung out with the ragamuffins, which is exactly where we find him in our two texts for this morning. In the first, Jesus sits with the tax collectors, sinners, and yes, the ragamuffins. In today's context, I imagine Jesus sitting at that unpopular kid's table in the middle school lunchroom. You all know which one I'm talking about. Maybe you were even at it. I might have been at one point. Now, when asked why he chooses to sit there, his response is that he has come not for those who are popular and holy and righteous, or for those kids that wear the expensive clothes, but for those who are unpopular, who are troublemaking, lost, downtrodden, or those who just can't seem to get it right. In the second text found in John's Gospel, Jesus advocates for a woman caught in adultery. Instead of condemning her as the religious authorities do, he refuses to engage in this challenge by writing on the ground. Now the question is always, well, what is he writing? We don't know. We don't know what he writes, but maybe that's not important because the act of writing itself is. He makes a choice by writing in the sand to disengage with those who challenge him and instead, he turns his attention to the woman before him. As he literally saves her life, he teaches a lesson about grace. Let the one who is without sin cast the first stone at her. He reminds them in the words of Brennan Manning once again in the Ragamuffin Gospel, to be alive is to be broken and to be broken is to stand in need of grace. Friends, we are all ragamuffins, each in our own way. We have sinned, we fall short, we make mistakes, 
We feel shame. We carry with us our scars and our flaws. But the good news is that despite our flaws, our shame, and our sin, Jesus offers grace. Grace given freely to each and every person. Grace is a gift given to us without price. However, this does not mean that we can accept God's grace and then go do whatever we want. This is what theologian Diedrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. Yes, God loves us as we are, but God also wants us to become more than we are. The good news of God's grace is that it always goes before us, reminding us and challenging us of this gift and what to do with it. Now, in case you need a refresher or a crash course on how we understand grace in the United Methodist Church, I invite you to picture for a moment a house. It could be your house. It could be a random house. It could be your dream house, whatever house you'd like. And think of the first kind of grace, prevenient grace, as the porch. You're sitting on the porch. Prevenient grace is that grace that calls us to something. It is that grace that goes before us before we are even aware of it ourselves. In the Methodist Church, we baptize infants because we celebrate that grace that is going before that child's life and acknowledging and celebrating that grace. So that is prevenient grace. We're on the porch. And then we move on to justifying grace. We might approach the door. We have this acknowledgement of God's grace in our lives. We celebrate it. We confess Jesus Christ as our Savior. And we say, God, thank you. I am your child, and I am forgiven, and I am assured of this grace. That's justifying grace. And then we might move inside the house where we then start building. We make it our own. We grow. We perhaps try to make it a little better. That sanctifying grace, then, is that grace that we keep going and perfecting our lives, loving God and loving one another. John Wesley, our founder of Methodism, once said that we are to move toward perfect love. We are to move toward perfection. When we are ordained as ministers of the United Methodist Church, the bishop asks us, are you moving on to perfection in this life? And we're all like, uh, probably not, but it's not supposed to sound intimidating, but it's a vow that we are constantly growing and evolving in the way that we are nurturing our relationship with God and loving one another. That is the beauty of sanctifying grace, that we are aided by God's Holy Spirit to continue throughout our lives. So Wesley understood salvation to be first and foremost a journey and process guided by grace, these three types. Now, once we acknowledge prevenient grace, once we experience justifying grace at the door of the house and that assurance that we are beloved of God, once we profess Jesus as our Savior who took on the cross, we begin a process of rebirth and claiming our identity within the family of God as we enter the house. We begin to live our lives devoted to the love of God and neighbor. And as the process of restoring that image of God present within each one of us at creation, Journey has its 
starts and stops, reversals and repentance. Sometimes we may find ourselves back out on the porch of the house, waiting to come inside. Or we may find ourselves at the door, hesitant in our ability to step over that threshold. Or we may find ourselves inside the house, but tempted to slip out the back door. Some are still outside on the porch, not sure where God is calling them to be. But that's the beautiful thing about grace, is the opportunity is always there to be restored to faith, no matter how many times we find ourselves back on that porch or making a run for the back door. Salvation is about that intentional journey of what Wesley called that Christian perfection that we talked about, that oneness with God and our oneness of love of neighbor and gifts for the life that is to come. Now, I don't know about you, but I have toured this house many times. I've spent a lot of time on the porch. I spent a lot of time at the door and back on the porch again. And I'm constantly working on how to live inside and make the house a beautiful and the best place that I know how. And I know I can't do any of it without the grace that God has that awaits me there. I recall a time in college when I worked as a hospital chaplain, and we had a chapel service every day for those in the hospital. And my supervisor offered communion to all who were present. I had had a particularly difficult day. I wasn't feeling confident in myself. I had not been proud of what I had done that day or I feel like I didn't treat someone the right way. I was doubting my call to ministry. I had said or thought negative things. And I did not take communion that morning during the time that it was offered. After the service, my colleague asked me about it. Thinking it was too personal of a question, I just shrugged and said, I just wasn't feeling it today. But then I remembered that we are all invited to come to the table as we are, no matter who we are, no matter what shame it is that we might be carrying or wrestling with. I remembered that we are indeed all broken and stand in need of grace, and it is grace that we are given. It is up to us, then, what we do with that grace. Has anyone seen the movie Awakenings with Robert De Niro and Robert Williams? Robert Williams. Beautiful movie. So it's based on a true story, and it tells of men and women in a mental hospital who are awake, but they are in a comatose state. They're not very responsive. And a doctor, played by Robert Williams in the film, decides to try a drug that might help returns again and again to see Leonard, even as he begins to twitch and become unable to speak. Yet she still came. She offered him grace. In one of the final scenes of the movie, Leonard and the young woman are having lunch at the hospital. It is obvious that Leonard is getting worse. He's stuttering, he's twitching. The woman had been telling Leonard about a dance that she recently attended. And Leonard shared that he had never been to a dance and would probably never be able to. 
So he gets up to the table to leave her, perhaps for the last time, and they grasp hands. And she begins to dance with Leonard in the middle of this lunchroom at the mental hospital. She dances with him until he stops shaking and he has a smile on his face, a look of pure joy. This scene is a beautiful picture of grace because like Leonard, every being has their twitches of sin and brokenness. And yet God, like this woman, holds us close with compassionate and unconditional love and guides us across the floor, holding us with loving, strong arms. So may you know that above all else, there is grace, amazing grace. How sweet the sound, and what a sweet sound it is.